0: Welcome to the Freedom to Learn podcast, exploring freedom, autonomy and social justice in education. This recording was made at the 2020 Freedom to Learn online forum.
1: It's really lovely to see so many people. Um, And you guys are very much at the forefront of uh, kind of activism and trying to change policy. So I really want to kind of try and help you along that journey uh, by trying to give you a bit of an insight uh, from the other side. Um, uh, I'll tell you a bit about kind of my career in a moment. Um, But this session uh, is definitely kind of in the spirit of this whole program uh, designed to be kind of quite informal. Um, So please uh, feel free to stick things in the chat, ask questions there, um, and we'll have plenty of time towards the end to kind of pick up questions too. So I really want to make sure that you guys get the most out of it. That's that's what I care about. So if you've got kind of things you want to hear more about or indeed things you want to hear less about, Um, then feel free to tell me in the chat. I'll keep that up while I'm uh, going through so I can try and answer some of those questions as we go through um, and then some more at the end. Um, So it's great to meet you. Um, I'm Oli Newton. I'm currently Executive Director at the Edge Foundation. um, And Edge is an independent education charity with very similar aims to Phoenix and and Sophie uh, and colleagues there. Uh, We're all about trying to make education more relevant. So that means working with schools, colleges, universities, uh, really to try and uh, involve more skills, uh, more of the kind of 21st century skills like teamwork,ing problem solving, uh, the things that young people are going to need for their uh, actual lives more than rote learning. Um, and it's also about uh, relevance in all kinds of other ways, more links with employers, more links with community organizations, um, working on real life projects that make a difference rather than just uh, coursework that goes in the bin. So themes that are dear to lots of your hearts. Um, but before I became a reformed character and joined the voluntary sector, I worked in the civil service for 12 years. Uh, and that's kind of the main thing I wanted to talk about today, because hopefully that can give you some insights for your campaign work um, as you try and kind of influence policy. So, um, yeah, I spent 12 years in DFE. I uh, did a variety of different jobs. Uh, I worked on 14 to 19 diplomas, WAVE if you remember them yeah yeah a few waves cool okay cool um they were i was a big fan of those i was sad they didn't come off because i thought they would give us a kind of much broader uh, kind of form of education um i was alan johnson's private secretary when he was secretary of state so that was kind of cool very much like the yes minister type job or the thick of it for uh, younger people in the room um uh, so it's quite nice to see the kind of uh, things right from the center uh, and then i worked on uh, traineeships and apprenticeships most recently so I was, I was head of apprenticeship strategy just before i left the department so uh, kind of really focusing in on vocational education and that's how I came across Edge. Um, so what I wanted to do today was a couple of things. I've got a few slides to show you but I don't want it to be death by PowerPoint and um, there's some slides that I use when I'm teaching politics at King's College which I do alongside my job um, to try and explain a bit about the policy making process um, but the reason I want to show them is to Give you a bit of a grounding to then know where the best places to influence are, and I thought that could be the kind of main point that we probably discussed. Um, and then, as we said earlier, Ali has uh, virtually recorded some questions for me, so I'm looking forward to being uh, interviewed by uh, by AI. That's very like fourth industrial revolution. Um, and then we'll have time at the end to pick up questions as well. So feel free to put anything in the chat, but we'll also um, bring people in if they want to ask a, a real life question. Then, um, so I'm going to go ahead and share um, some slides. Let's make sure this bit of tech bit of the tech works. Um, Sophie, can you give me a wave if you can see those? Is that working? Yep, yeah, cool. Got a thumbs up. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Um, so I'm going to take you through these um, I can't see the chat whilst I'm doing the slides So I don't feel like I'm ignoring you if I miss a question that's in there But I'll um, I'll switch this the screen share off once I've gone through these and I'll be able to pick up questions So this is really just um, uh, a few thoughts really from my time uh, in the civil service about uh, some of the kind of elements of policy So I think one, one question that people often ask is you know Where do these often crazy ideas come from? Where does policy originate and the answer is in a whole range of different places and um, one of those places is the kind of party machine Machine, so whoever's in power. Um, a good example of that um, would be the target around apprenticeships, the three million target, which some people will be familiar with. Um, you know That came out, we now know from various political biographies, from a conversation on a train between Nick Bowles, who's the minister, and his special advisor. And they basically just said, we did two million last time, what should we do this time? Well, what's bigger than two? Three? let's kind of go with three. So uh, sometimes it is just a kind of purely political decision um, and and that's kind of what's behind these things. Um, International is a really interesting dimension and um, often ministers obviously will um, hear from uh, colleagues from different countries or go on visits. Um, It can be a bit of a bane of the civil servant's life when a minister goes off to another country and finds an idea they like and they want to bring back. Um, In the kind of academic sphere, we often talk about kind of policy borrowing versus policy learning and policy borrowing is basically where you try and grab a policy from a different context and drop it into your own country um without really understanding the context and that's something that um ministers can be guilty of on all different political spectrums but one example would be something like the apprenticeship levy the tax on employers to fund apprenticeships now ministers first saw that in germany and austria where the the uh, employers do pay towards the system, but they pay towards the system because it's a really good system that they that they want to invest in. It's not a tax that they have to pay. And so taking that one element out of the system and dropping it into ours as a tax um, has a very different set of incentives. Um, and so policy borrowing can be a challenge. Um, and we would kind of advocate policy learning and understanding the kind of motives behind rather than just taking those. External events clearly drive policy. I mean, a great example this week with the uh, exam fiasco, I think it's fair to say. Um, you know, that's caused a reaction and, and change in policy because of external events. Um, political influences, that includes all of you and all of the wonderful young people that you work with as well, um, but also people like think tanks who come up with ideas, uh, charities like Phoenix or the Edge Foundation who are kind of always pushing for different policies. Um, so there's a whole range of kind of different areas there where ideas can come from. Um, local initiatives. So um, often, again, I saw kind of examples where um, ministers would see something working in one particular area and want to spread that. Um, a good example of that, again, thinking about my kind of work on apprenticeships, was um, work to try and embed uh, apprenticeships in local contracts, so where councils were letting services, let's say, making sure that a number of jobs associated with that were um, apprenticeships, and several councils kind of pioneered that, but ministers wanted all public services to take their to take their share. Um, the past so um, kind of policies coming around uh, that have been there before adapted Um, parliament often not the big policies but tweaks to policy and I'll say a bit more about that in a moment Um, and also again this is really important for your work but that idea of kind of policy feedback I mean we've seen that writ large this week where young people have had placards and been standing outside sanctuary buildings telling ministers how they should change the grading policy. But in a hundred other little ways, um, ministers and civil servants are always looking to understand kind of policy feedback from the front line and build that into how policies develop. So that's really the kind of first uh, step in the policy process. Where do those kind of ideas come from? And now in the spirit of the kind of title and peeking behind the curtain, I guess I wanted to give you a bit of a, an overview of what it's like to be in that kind of civil service role. Um, many of you will know the civil service are kind of politically neutral. They need to serve the government of the day. That's the way our system works. Um, so they're trying to do their best to, Deliver the policies that the government set out in their manifesto, or that ministers are, are, are kind of working on. Um, and often, it feels as a policymaker like you're at the centre of this kind of ring of people all trying to influence and change what you're what you're doing. Um, and really, it's it's a, a very much a job of kind of keeping those plates spinning and trying to make sure that you get, I would say, the kind of the, the best compromise outcome between all of these different um, players. So I thought it'd be helpful to kind of share that with you and share a bit about how these different influences. Act on policymakers um, ministers and special advisors are kind of more of an obvious one. you know ministers are the elected uh, uh, kind of figures who uh, represent their department uh, and are making kind of some of the key decisions um, and special advisors I know they have a reputation as a bit of a kind of creepy eminence squeeze behind the throne um in general, apart from Dominic Cummings, who obviously is you know uh, in a world of his own. Um, lots of the special advisors are lovely and and their role is really important in the system because they Although they're civil servants, they're allowed to be political. And so they, in a way, when they're working well, act as a bit of a shield to civil servants. Because if, say, a minister is making a policy, uh, sorry, making a speech, the civil servants will be able to develop the policy, work on the statistics behind it, make sure it's all true. But then it's the special advisor who will add the kind of the spin, the party line so that civil servants don't have to do that. Um, And that's really important because it means that civil servants can remain impartial. And if the party in power changes, they can serve them just as well as the the last people who are in power. So, yeah, I have uh, I have a lot of time for special advisors when that system works well. Um, Clearly, uh, you know, we'll all have personal feelings about individuals who happen to be doing those roles. Um, Senior officials, so by that I mean kind of the managers in the civil service, um, they have a really important role, particularly because like many big organizations, the civil service is quite siloed. You know, you'd be in charge of a very specific policy area um, and you might not always have a chance to look up and see all of the other areas that connect to that. Uh, And so there's a really important role for senior people in the department to understand those connections and make sure that doing something on apprenticeships doesn't radically impact the funding for schools or vice versa. Number ten and Treasury, um, so uh, really important and kind of at the forefront of ministers' minds a lot of the time because obviously the Treasury holds the purse strings, and Number Ten are the ones who uh, kind of have control of the party machine and and whether that minister is going to be a high flyer in their career or whether they're going to be moved to the most junior post in uh, you know the, the most junior ministry next. So. Uh, those are people who ministers will have on their minds and want to keep keep busy and keep happy. And um, obviously, as as you will have seen in kind of recent years, I think most political commentators feel that there's a there's a kind of more of a move of power towards the centre, um, uh, and that Number Ten and the Treasury are taking more control over some of the kind of policies, even the the kind of social policies that would otherwise be the responsibility of the department. Um, Parliament, of course, both through things like the Select Committee, who we might talk about a bit later because I think they're a really important ally for your political influencing work. Um, but also when um, legislation is going through, obviously um, MPs and peers have a really important role in shaping that and uh, and allowing it to go through, but setting conditions and, and shaping it at that point. Um, Stakeholders, probably the biggest bubble if this was kind of uh, proportionate, but all of those massive groups with an interest in in education, everyone around this table, the the teaching unions, the the schools, the colleges themselves, commentators, academics, um, all of those kind of people who want the ear of of policy officials. the media clearly uh, always on ministers minds and therefore civil servants needing to kind of keep up with that how are things going to go down with with the media how are things going to play with them Um, and finally uh, just a nod really to kind of some of the specialists in government and again they're a group that you might want to think about kind of how you might influence um, but uh, there are there's an increasing and I think a welcome amount of specialization and, and professionalism within the civil service. So that as well as uh, kind of uh, generic policy civil servants, which is what I was, um, you would have kind of um, statisticians, economists, social researchers, um, lawyers um, who are helping to kind of develop the evidence and make sure that that uh, kind of stacks up behind the policy. Um, and I think that, that professionalism is, is very welcome. Um, uh, and they're a very important group in the policy making process. So in terms of how policy is developed, uh, I wanted to kind of just talk through this little model that I've put together and um, uh, and I'll use an example just to bring it to life a little bit. And it's an example I mentioned briefly before, which was thinking about um, how more apprenticeships might be delivered in the public sector, um, which obviously was a particular concern of ministers because they wanted to have more, more apprenticeships uh, and they felt like the public sector should be doing more. So when, when that idea um comes to the civil servants from whichever of those bubbles that we talked about in the first slide and um, the first thing to do and, and i should say this the reason that i haven't kind of put time scales on this arrow is that it can be anything from overnight to six months so if if something has gone crazy like the exam stuff this this week you know you might there might not be the the time to, to have a luxurious look at all of the research it might be a five minute google um, whereas if you are really thinking about you know a massive change to the welfare system let's say there might be months and months of research so this is kind of adaptable depending on what time scale is available um but in general i think these kind of five steps tend to be involved in policy making so, yeah, so there's the research stage and that might include, for instance, looking at international examples, looking at examples from the past, what went well, what went wrong. Uh, it might include talking to stakeholders like people around the table or um, the Association of Colleges or um, some of the teaching unions or academics who are, who are experts trying to understand and build up a picture of um, what's happening. The second stage then is thinking about options development. So in this case, uh, looking at things like, um, you know if we're going to deliver more apprenticeships in the public sector, um, what options are there available? We could be really draconian and say, uh, every local area has a target, and if you don't make that target, you get less money. We could be persuasive and uh, publish a league table that shows how many apprenticeships are delivered in each local area. Uh, we could um, try and incentivize. We could say, if you deliver... Uh, 100 apprenticeships in your area, we're going to give you some money. Um, so we start to develop that kind of full range of different policy options. At that point then, um, experts tend to get involved. And by that, I mean people like the the legal department, the uh, analysts, but also sometimes external experts. Um, uh, you know, I've, I've been called to to kind of give evidence or, or kind of support that um, in my job outside. And, and uh, the same would be true of academics and others with with an interest. Um, and that's about helping the civil servants to kind of slim down those options, kick out ones that wouldn't work. Um, so typically in our little example, you know, giving money to incentivize might not be an option because the department doesn't have um, uh, any additional funding for this. So that one might be struck out. Um, it may be that the legal experts look at the idea of um, kind of uh, setting targets and decide that um, actually that would require legislation and there isn't time for that. So that one might be kind of off the list. So that, that all helps to feed into the fourth bubble, and options appraisal. So that is starting to actually narrow down that long list and uh, have a short list of ones that are actually feasible with some pros and cons. So we might end up with a, a much shorter uh, range, but um, a set that are more deliverable or um, you know ones that are kind of possible to take forward. And then that finally moves towards the kind of recommendation stage and that's where uh, advice is given to ministers from the civil servants to say, look, we've looked at the full range. You asked us to do this. You asked us to get more um, apprenticeships in the public sector. We looked at a whole range of options uh, and we discounted some of them for the following reasons. Having looked at those, there's still a couple left um, and here's the one that we recommend. And in this case, the the recommendation was that there would be a a target in the public sector, um, which is what happened um and that public bodies would be kind of held publicly to account for the number of uh, apprenticeships that they offered within their workforce um so they would have to publish that within their kind of annual reports and if they didn't have enough apprentices then it would be very obvious and they could be kind of um you know either praised or not praised depending on how well they were doing so it's just a kind of mini uh, example to get us up to that point of kind of how policy is is made and in terms of kind of uh how the decision is then made once you've got that recommendation um, as in kind of uh, uh, many big organizations, I suppose, there are there are kind of different hurdles to to clear in order to get that agreed. Um, the first is that it would go back to those kind of specialist teams that we talked about. So the legal advisors would have to make sure they were happy and you weren't suggesting something that would actually need a new law. Um, the finance team would have to check that they, you weren't suggesting something that would actually cost millions of pounds and you hadn't factored that in. Um, It would need to be cleared with senior officials um, and again that's to make sure that it fits with the kind of overall strategy. We're not kind of uh, accidentally spending twice as much on apprenticeships as other options or we're not doing something here that would kind of negatively affect another area. Um, Ministers, and uh, this is still a very kind of traditional process. So, for those of you who've kind of uh, seen the 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 Chancellor on Budget Day with his red box, uh, literally all ministers do have those red boxes with little keys, and they get sent home with their homework after after work, um, which generally consists of lots of parliamentary questions to sign, lots of letters to members of the public to sign, uh, and also these kinds of policy decisions to make. Um, And their private secretaries. So, when I was um, Alan Johnson's private secretary, there their role is to kind of make sure that that advice gets to the minister. They'd often write notes on it and then they would communicate the the kind of response from the minister back to people in the department. So that's their kind of role. Uh, and finally um if it's a big decision uh, it would need cross government uh, kind of agreement one of the kind of principles of the system is that um there's kind of collective responsibility amongst the cabinet ministers for any big decisions uh, and so um for any big ones they they have to be signed off at that level um and uh, i won't go into the detail but there's kind of a a process uh, which uh, kind of goes from the department that's trying to make the decision uh, around all of those cabinet ministers um to kind of ask for their permission uh, and it's often the subject of uh, much shenanigans so if it's a if it's a difficult decision then ministers will send it or the officers will send it out last thing on a friday and say you know if we haven't heard back by 8 a.m on monday then we will all have agreed this um so yes lots of fun there as well so final thing I just wanted to share then was once those decisions are made, um, you know, what happens to put those decisions into practice? Um, and obviously it depends a huge amount on this kind of scale of the policy uh, and on the kind of nature, but some of the key things that can happen. Um, consultation, and I mentioned that because that can be a really important point for you to influence the decision, even once the kind of bare bones are set out. Um, departments uh, often have to consult on key things and, and also publish a response to um, to those consultations, um, legislation again really important in terms of influencing. If it's a big change, it might require a change in the law, either what's called primary legislation, so a bill in Parliament, or secondary legislation, which is the kind of small, um, the more detailed elements. And um, again, there's an opportunity to to kind of um, work with MPs who you might know, or write to your local MP to kind of influence that. So it's another one that's kind of a possible area to to support. Um, funding, so um, if something is a big decision that can't be funded within a department's own budget, then it might form part of uh, the, the budget or the, the autumn statement, the kind of big fiscal statements. And then of course it'll move into delivery, and that might be uh, in an education case, it might go out as a directive to schools or colleges. Um, in other departments' cases, it might go from DWP to job centers to say you need to change the way that you work. Um, And then, of course, there is an element of feedback. So even when policies have been enacted, um, uh, there's an opportunity for kind of uh, the end users to feedback. And in my opinion, that's not as strong as it needs to be, but there is an element there um, of feedback um, to to try and kind of improve policy. So that's kind of uh, brings that little section to an end. I hope that's helpful. What I wanted to do was really just share with you kind of a bit of an insight into um, as the title said, kind of pulling the curtain back and showing a bit how some of the education policy is made, but with a view to kind of then using that framework and structure in the, in the next section and in your questions to try and help you think about kind of where, where you might be able to influence more and also to try and avoid areas where, um, you know, you might make a lot of effort and it might not kind of make a change because that's also really important and I've been there. Um, I'm going to stop sharing my screen so that I can see your lovely faces a bit better and so that um, I can see the questions as well, um, but I'm really happy for Sophie and the team to share the slides with, with everyone as well if, if you want those afterwards too.
2: Thanks Ollie. that's great, we would love to do that for sure. Um, I know that, um, well I'm hoping that the video from Alia has now been um, loaded up by Rowan who's going to mm-hmm. share, um, but before we do that do you want to quickly take, there's a question from Max in the um, comments
1: yeah it was a really good question as well so yeah i'm really happy to take that one next um, Max, do you want because... to say
3: it? <laughs> yeah sure um yeah so as a as a university academic it's always really frustrating when there's really solid rigorous research coming out and then the policy runs counter to it so i'm thinking particularly something like ability grouping where most of the academic research shows that ability grouping is not helpful for the vast majority of children and yet government policy from all parties really is to continue Mm -hmm. with ability grouping so yeah i just was had a question about whether you think the policy is ever really influenced by academic research or whether there's too many other forces in play for that
1: yeah it's a really good question max and i can definitely see why um it can be frustrating particularly as we do a lot of research in edge now so i can kind of see it from the opposite point of view um to be quite honest when i was when i was a civil servant i don't think i ever read a full research report um, and I say that because I think it's important to, to kind of um you know, be aware of that. Uh, And I, you know, I was, uh, you know, I don't think I was a bad civil servant. It wasn't everyone else was doing it. The the key problem, I think, or one of the key problems is that everything gets filtered through the departmental research teams. Um, So partly it's an issue that the kind of policy civil servants are very busy, but I I don't think that that's an excuse. I think a lot of stuff gets kind of filtered through. Um, And there's also can be a bit of a culture of um, like those, teams being pressured to find the research that fits the decision that's already been made um, which is not a good academic practice but I, I'm but kind of into, in the spirit of realism that can happen quite a bit. Um, so I think I think academic research is really important and one of the things that I want to do more of in my role at edge is try and connect up better the worlds of research policy and practice because otherwise we risk that kind of stereotype of researchers kind of shouting at each other. Um, policymakers not listening and being terribly busy and uh, practitioners thinking what are all these people on about I just need to get on with teaching um, and uh, you know that that is a kind of stereotype but it sometimes does hold true um, so I've been doing quite a lot of thinking in that sort of space and one example is that we uh, we have a research review group within our kind of area, kind of 14 to 19 education careers guidance, um, which brings together kind of lead researchers and people from DFE to try and kind of be a neutral space to share that. Um, so um, I guess in answer to your question, I don't think the link is strong enough yet and it annoys me. So I'm trying to do something about it. Um, but I also think that your work is really valuable. And I think the best way to kind of get it across is to, to try and um, get kind of power through Uh, numbers, so to try and kind of gather together research groups or get involved with people like the EEF, um, who can kind of help to amplify uh, messages that keep coming up. Um, So yeah, I hope that's helpful Max, and if there's stuff I can do with your particular area, always feel free to drop me a line and I can try and advise or support.
3: Thank you very much, thanks. There's a question
2: from Niall as well about a policy menu, and can we take that question and then we'll go to um, Aaliyah's video. No,
1: go ahead and share it yourself, if you like. My question is, uh, there's there's two there, which have almost, how can knowledge emerge from within the system, particularly where the work is done? I'm speaking from the point of view of having been for a long time a small rural school primary head teacher with so many policies coming at us. And the linked question, which is almost the same further down there is, could policy be more like a menu offering choices rather than prescription? Because then it could be enabling, like freedom to learn, because there's nothing more frustrating that I've found that we're suddenly doing something new that might even have come from policy. And then we're told a new policy comes in that throws it all out the window. So I want something much more enabling. So there's my thought and a question, really. Yeah, I mean, I'm 100% behind that now. I think that's a really important point. Um, I mean, I think that the challenge is always that, well, there's a big challenge with inbuilt within the political system, which is that um, ministers change so quickly and they all want to make a mark. Yeah. Um, so I think that's that's a real challenge because it means that there's a, there's a kind of inbuilt incentive to just do something and stick a label on it so that you've got a legacy, uh, which I think is uh, very unhelpful. And one of the things that we want we have been encouraging for a long time at edge is trying to have a kind of cross party commission on education that depoliticizes it and creates a bit of stability um so uh, i would love to get there we can't get there quite yet so anything that we can do to try and make you know increase stability i think is really important um local flexibility is a really interesting one where um it's a classic policy where you know, governments kind of go back and forth. Uh, I mean, just look at regional devolution. Um, Policies get devolved, um, uh, kind of, but without many levers. And then they get kind of reeled back in when something goes wrong. And it just, there's like this horrible yo-yo effect. Um, Again, we're we're really kind of supportive of a lot more devolution, um, not just to regions, but to mayoral areas, to colleges and schools themselves. So I think, um, like you say, a, a minimum rule book of kind of, I mean, there are some things that should be, should be set centrally. An, an example would be like this, the standards for an apprenticeship. Um, we don't want plumbers who happen to qualify in Devon to be a different standard to Newcastle, let's say. So that's, you know, there's something there that we're just like, there's no point having local. But then actually delivering that, you know uh, And the numbers that are needed and how that's delivered, that should absolutely be local. Um, so I think there needs to be a lot more devolution and a lot more genuine freedom um, rather than kind of um, purported freedom but without actually the ability to put it into practice.
2: Cheers, Ollie. Thank you. Ron, do you want to see if you can share your screen? Yeah. And then the way that it's going to work is we'll watch a bit of video, hear a question, and then pause, come back to Ollie, and then go back. Can everyone see this now?
0: Hey everyone, my name is Aaliyah York. I am a 17-year-old A-level student who is currently studying politics, geography and sociology. I am also the founder of People Power, which is a student-led movement aiming to educate and engage as many young people across the UK on educational policy that directly impact them and their experience of school. I'm super, super, super excited to be here today and take over for the Q&A segment. So I wanted to ask a few questions to Oli directly and hopefully inspire some of you guys in the audience who is listening to activate that inner change maker within you. COVID-19 personally for me has been a moment of time that had the power to transform a lot I think it felt like in March a massive red button has been pressed and the world has paused and stopped. And for once, we were finally able to reflect on some of the issues within different systems, particularly within education. As a young person who goes to school Monday to Friday, I almost feel trapped. And now that I've been outside of the system, I can notice all the things that I didn't necessarily pick up on before. I wanted to ask Ollie what consequences have basically occurred because of COVID? on education and what would your recommendations be for our return to school post-lockdown? I'll pause it for that one and then Perfect. go to the next.
1: Great, great, great question, virtual Alia. Um, so I think in terms of kind of the impact, um, uh, I, there is uh, we did a report about kind of COVID's impact on education. So I will, when, when I finish speaking, pop the link in the chat, just in case anyone wants a bit more info on that. Uh, and the point of that really was to try and bring together and all of the really interesting research that's been done so far um, so that you don't have to read everything. You can just read the condensed version. So hopefully that'll save people a bit of time. And we'll do the same again, kind of early in 2021, with the, with the research that's happened next. But to summarize, I think um, it's been, there's been so many different impacts and uh, my heart goes out to the teachers who have been doing their very, very best uh, in kind of very difficult circumstances. I think one kind of key uh, thing that we saw was that schools that were already using some online systems were much, much better uh, equipped to, to to hit the ground running with, with the kind of blended and online learning. Um, and it was much harder for those for whom it was a complete handbrake turn who hadn't been using this. Um, linked to that, I think there's a real challenge with digital poverty. Um, and a lot of that is hidden. Um, so... Uh, obviously, we, it's obviously a problem for kids who don't have access to a device at all. But talking to a head teacher recently in Hull, you know, a lot of his kids technically have access to a device on the government measures. But what that means is like mum's mobile with limited data and four kids in the house. So that, that really isn't access. Um, so I think that's been a big challenge. Um, on the plus side, I think there has been a real growth in appetite for looking at education differently amongst everyone um, which has been great to see you know young people like you but also parents and uh, teachers uh, and some of our polling results kind of bring that alive and we're going to actually publish some more um, as kind of a back-to-school story, but a lot more appetite for practical learning, for um, you know bringing real examples into the classroom, for focusing education on a broader range of skills, not just rote learning for exams. Um, I think the key thing, though, is that we're going to need to collectively try and hold on to that momentum as things go back, because um, everyone is worn out, uh, not just with COVID, but with the grading thing and with the Russians poisoning everyone, and it's all a bit much. So I think we've got to kind of keep um, keep our our kind of momentum up, and try and kind of uh, keep our energy reserves up to to kind of hold, get keep hold of that change. I guess.
0: Thank you. Shall I move on to the next question? So, secondly, I want to know why it's important for young people to be involved in the conversation of education. Throughout lockdown, throughout Covid, so many flaws have been highlighted within the system and inequalities have been reproduced as a result of the government's decisions and policies that they've implemented. I want to really really find out why do we need young people involved in this conversation? Why do we need young people filling up these spaces and talking about their own experiences of the education system? And do you think there would be any consequences if young people and students are not involved in this conversation
1: Great yeah, I mean, I think uh, I mean at the at the basic level, the key thing is that um you know young people are the key end users of this system, so even in like the the kind of nerdy policy thinking, like it's really, really important to get feedback from your customers in any business, um so there's kind of just a very clear an obvious rationale but there's also a really important moral imperative because the whole point of all of us being in this system at all um and trying to change it is to try and make things better for young people so um we need to kind of make sure that that is that is the case um young people uh, in my experience often uh, come to us with really great ideas because they're not constrained by the same uh kind of Forces that we are, um, and you know, just if you think back to that little diagram I showed with the kind of policymaker in the middle and all the influences around, you know, that poor policymaker has got so many voices in their ears. And they're trying to kind of find the satisfactory way through, whereas young people can come into it fresh and be like, actually, that doesn't work in my school. I think you should do it like this without necessarily having all those constraints. Um, so I think they can often often come to us with really, really good ideas. Um, I do have a bugbear about the system, though, which is where young people have a given like a very tokenistic role in having a voice. Um, and I think that in my experience, that's happened a lot uh, where there's like a, a youth council of very carefully selected young people who get to see a very small number of decisions uh, and, and kind of comment on them uh, in order to kind of tick that box. Um, whereas I, I really love organizations like Sophie's and like um, Ashoka who we're working with at the moment where, and Youth Employment um, UK if people know them where they've got a youth, youth board who basically holds the chief executive account um, that is, uh, you know, and she works for them. Um, I think those kind of models are really cool and, and are much more honest uh, in terms of putting you know, people at the center than some of the kind of more tokenistic stuff that I've seen over the years.
0: Thank you. my third question is what practical steps need to be made to increase youth engagement what do young people need to do and what do organisations need to do
1: yeah this is a really good question so I think um there are there are there are some mechanisms that young people can take directly to try and influence policy, and all and all of the rest of us. To be honest, um, clearly, kind of writing into ministers, writing to MPs is is important, uh, and that that stuff does genuinely get looked at. Particularly correspondence into the department if it's uh, if it's kind of clear that that's from a young person, that kind of gets VIP treatment. Um, so that's important, uh, and that can be uh, an important kind of element of of support. Um, we talked a bit earlier about different. Um, Kind of uh, other influences within um, the sector, and um, the select committee in particular is a great one where um, you know they're always looking for evidence. They're very kind of persuaded by um, evidence from individuals, so that can be an, a, an interesting way to do it. I think there's a really important role for. Um, Organisations that help to uh, kind of stitch together and amplify youth voice uh, in a genuine way, um, and, and you know, I've, I've come across loads of really good ones that that, that kind of um, that, that have that role. So that can be a really important way, so that you don't feel like you're just an individual change maker, but you're part of a network of support um, with with your voice. So um, yeah, I would say you know it's absolutely essential that we put young people more centrally into the kind of the development of policy in its broadest sense. Um, and those are just a few reflections on on how we might do that a bit better.
0: My next question is, what skills do you require as a policy analyst or policy maker? And what do you would you recommend as practical tips for anybody considering to go in going into a career in policy?
1: Cool. So, yeah, so thinking about kind of the career itself, um, I think the kind of um, the skills definitely kind of good writing and uh, kind of analytical school skills. So, similar to kind of the researcher type role, being able to kind of understand a lot of information quickly. Um, when I put that diagram up of the kind of arrow, uh, and I was joking about the kind of time scale that it might take, um, you know, frequently it does it has to happen very, very quickly, um, to respond to different events. Uh, and so kind of really quickly understanding, um, kind of a lot of information and developing those options can be, can be really, really powerful. Um, in terms of what people could do if they are particularly younger people, if they're interested in a career in this sort of space, um, I think, uh, kind of experience of some kind is really, can be really powerful and that doesn't have to be at a national level. So things like, um, working with a local councillor on a local issue, campaigning, uh, lots of the stuff that Sophie and similar organisations do to help to kind of support young people to be youth activists. Um, All of that is really powerful. Um, But also kind of at the national level, there are opportunities to kind of do internships in government departments uh, mps are always looking for kind of support in their constituency office, offices um often not the most glamorous bits of the work it'll be answering constituents letters about why their bins haven't been emptied but that's important in working your way up um so i think uh, yeah getting some experience um, and but, but kind of showing your passion as well um is really important and all of the stuff that uh, the kind of youth activists who are represented around this forum, um, you know, we'll be doing to try and change things on the ground is great experience in its own right. If you wanted to go into this kind of area,
2: can we take a question from the group and then go to more familiar? Um, there's been some in the chat. Let me have a look. Oh, Jonathan, could you just raise a hand if you'd like to ask a question for Ollie? That's going to help me out. Do you have one? No? All right, cool. Ron, do you want to carry on with Aaliyah's video in that case? Thank you.
0: I know that I want to go into policy. I know that when I go off to uni I'm considering studying politics or international development slash policy courses and I want you to recommend any books any sort of podcast that you listen to what would you recommend to prepare us for our journey into that field
1: oh that's a really good question so um i think kind of uh, probably the most important thing is just keeping up to date with kind of current affairs but also um reading things from different perspectives i find really really helpful um, even though it's a bit painful kind of following people on twitter who you really don't agree with and understanding what they're or seeing what they're saying can be very very powerful i think um I guess one other um, one other kind of tip or thing that I think is quite interesting if you're thinking about moving into that sort of space uh, is picking another country and trying to really understand their their, politi- their political system. Um, it almost doesn't matter which, but I would say you know try and focus deep on maybe one or two rather than hoovering up a tiny bit from everyone, uh, and maybe try and pick one that's just kind of a bit outside your comfort zone maybe kind of uh, you know in an area of the world that you haven't visited so much um because i think um you know it's important to basically to have that comparator and also to have that kind of global perspective um so yeah i can i can uh, i will drop Ali a line to connect anyway after this and recommend some other things but um, those are just a couple of thoughts in terms of uh, good ways to kind of keep up to date and get prepared for that kind of world, world.
0: My next question is, what indirect slash direct impact do you have in your role with Edge Foundation on a day to day basis? And what has probably been your most rewarding moment in your career so far?
1: Very cool question. Okay, so I mean, I guess one one reflection um, is that I feel like I have a lot more. Impact in this role than I did when I was working in the civil service, which may surprise people. Um, Certainly, like the budget here is like uh, several decimal points lower than in the department. So it's not that I have a load of money to play with, but I feel like I have a lot more opportunities to. Um, have the freedom to kind of think my own thoughts and influence and build connections. Um, so so that's kind of uh, definitely, uh, definitely a positive. Uh, in terms of the ways that we do that, uh, one of them links back to what Max was mentioning earlier in terms of research. So we do a lot of primary research ourselves, and that's a good chance to kind of build the evidence base, both for the world that we want to see, but also against things that we don't like. One example would be things like the EBAC, um, which people will know is kind of a narrow academic curriculum in school uh, that's that's kind of pushing out subjects like design and technology and uh, creative subjects. Um, so we spend time kind of finding out what impact that has in order to build the case for a broader curriculum. Um, we do kind of policy influencing work directly. And that means talking to members of parliament and peers from different parties and also civil servants, trying to gently bring them around to our way of thinking, using that evidence base to do that. Um, and then we also do work on the ground, um, uh, either through giving money to other organisations to help to support them, um, and also working directly with schools and colleges, and um, particularly to try and um, help them to bring about that kind of broader curriculum, to bring more employers and community organisations into their into their kind of uh, work, and also to support them to help their young people to be change makers and to kind of uh, live that live that way of doing things. Um, and I think the way that that helps us to make a change is that uh, it allows us to bring together those three worlds that we talked a bit about before. So we've got that kind of research world. We've got the kind of delivery world and we've got the policy world all in one small team. There's about 12 of us. Um, And that helps us to kind of build a really strong argument when we're talking to, to politicians about the case for change. Um, in terms of proud moments, well, let me tell you about a weird moment from my career in the civil service. Um, I used to um, look after National Apprenticeship Week as one of my uh, kind of jobs, uh, which was great fun. Really nice to kind of celebrate all the great work of apprentice- apprentices. Um, but every year um, that whoever was prime minister, they'd want to have some sort of big announcement, um, and Number Ten, bless them, would always be uh, like only ever thinking like twenty-four hours ahead. So even though I got in touch with them weeks ahead and said, you know, it's going to be National Apprenticeship Week, you're going to do one do something. They would never get around to thinking about it until just before. So this one particular time, um, David Cameron was PM uh, and they rang us with like 48 hours notice and said, we'd really like to do an event. We'd like about 600 apprentices. Uh, and then the PM would stand in the middle of them and give a speech. And we were like 600. Um, so we, we managed to pull it off the mini, the mini factory in Oxford happened to have like a, a factory building that they'd built that wasn't yet like equipped to build minis which they very kindly gave us and we were busting apprentices in from all over the midlands so um and then it was also during there was like a massive storm at the time um and uh it was also obviously really like secretive because the pm was going to be there so nobody's allowed to know uh, we I remember we checked into the travel lodge um uh, and the person behind the, t- the counter was like oh you're here for the event with the prime minister and we were like Okay, clearly not that high security. So yeah, there, there are many more weird stories, but that was that was one that really sticks in my head.
0: Now, Ollie, has there been a policy that hasn't worked or haven't hasn't been as in, as effective as you have possibly planned it to be, and how have you overcome it?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, There there certainly have been lots of policies that haven't um, impacted as they were intended. Um, I think uh, government is not great at kind of admitting that and learning the lessons and moving on. I think there's also a bit of a... um, a bit of a challenge with the media because whenever government changes there's always like a massive government does a u-turn kind of thing which makes ministers very kind of anxious to try something because if they do try something and then they do need to shift course they get kind of hammered with that um now i know it's it's kind of um you know it's quite cathartic sometimes to read those kinds of stories but the kind of negative impact is that it can make ministers very risk averse because they don't want to try something that even though it might be good, because if they then change it, it's like, oh, they back down. It's done rather than like a more mature approach of, oh, no, they they tried something and they tweaked it and now that's okay, um, which is what we see in some other countries. So, um, I mean, I, I guess a good example of a policy that didn't land as it was intended would be the apprenticeship levy. And um, that's the, the tax that funds apprenticeships, which uh, the idea of which was to try and um, get a, uh, employers to put more into the pot um, and uh, therefore have more apprenticeships and apprenticeships are great things I have you know I'm a big supporter of them so if that had worked out that would be brilliant what has tended to happen is that um, big businesses have seen the apprenticeship levy as as a tax that they need to kind of minimize and get as much back from as possible and so they uh, have tended to Try and spend it on training of existing employees um, because then they're not hiring somebody new. And so the the biggest growth area in apprenticeships since the levy has been management apprenticeships for people who are already uh, employed. Um, And whilst kind of ongoing training and CPD is really important, I don't think many people would argue that kind of training an existing member of staff in a financial institution, let's say, um, is as important as giving a 16 or 17 year old kind of their first step into that into that world. Um, So I think that's that's an interesting example of a policy that was taken from an international example and that landed in a very different way than what was intended.
0: Now, I am a very action-focused person and I want to challenge you to make a pledge towards committing to the mission and the fight of getting young people on board and kind of being at the forefront of leading change. So I want you to make a pledge and I also want you to challenge your colleagues and any other policymakers out there to think about how you and your in your position can make your organization a more inclusive environment for young people to be involved and kind of engage in the policy that you make.
1: Yeah, great to be action focused and I I love that challenge. So I think the, the kind of area that we've started working on and I really wanna expand and do more on in the next kind of six months to a year is some really exciting work that we're doing with Ashoka, which is a partner charity and Sophie knows a bit more about this as well, um, where we're going to be uh, working in a particular area of the country um, to try and embed the idea of changemaker education into every bit of that, um, that city's kind of infrastructure. Um, and we're also going to be electing some uh, young changemakers who can help us to kind of steer that forward. Um, so I can't say any more about that yet, but kind of exciting um, kind of teaser trailer there, and we'll kind of share more as soon as we can. Um, and that is really about trying to um, move away as I said from the kind of tokenistic approach to to kind of involving young people that I've maybe seen in, in kind of uh, different policy areas in the past uh, and moving to really kind of making that kind of central to, to the mission um, and in terms of encouraging others I would say yeah I, I think um, it can be it can be really tempting as a busy policymaker to kind of um, get a bit blinkered and just think, I've I've really got to work on this announcement for next Tuesday. I really got to just get the best outcome I can in the circumstances Uh, and just taking a bit of time to step back and uh, listen to some young people's voices directly, um, I think can be a really, really powerful thing to do.
0: Okay. Now, finally, my final, final, final question is... Related to this idea of so many young people and potentially adults saying that 2020 is cancelled, for me personally, as a kind of hopeful, young, optimistic person, I really do believe that 2020 and you know this time that we've gone through that has been very, very mad, is an opportunity for us to transform things. It's, we've noticed things, we've realised what's wrong within the world, and we're finally kind of waking up. And taking action um, in ways that we probably haven't before. So, for me, it's a, it's a moment of transformation and it's, it's, it makes me feel really hopeful. The one question um, and the sort of theme that we have throughout People Power is this idea of reimagining what the 21st century education system could look like. You know, we can't create change if we don't believe that the impossible is possible. So, my question to you is what is your vision for a transformed 21st century education system?
1: Well, I could spend another hour talking about that, but just to give a bit of an insight, um, I think uh, kind of the key thing that we need to change is the idea that um, kind of knowledge is the currency because that is just a very 19th century idea. And I think we need to move to the kind of measures of education being about creating rounded individuals with, yes, access to knowledge, but most importantly, the skills to interpret it and also the behaviours that we want to see in the world. And part of that is being a change maker, but it's also... Uh, kind of empathy, team working, communications, all the things that we we see, we see, want to see in our family and in our teams and everyone else. Um, how do we do that? Well, I think changing what we measure is one of the most important things because systems just deliver what you measure. Um, if it's just exam results that matter, then that's what the system's going to give you. Um, and if you move more to something like a rounded kind of baccalaureate style um, assessment at the end of um, education that takes into account skills and progression, um, that would be uh, an important step. Um, measuring destinations of young people um, you know, several years after they've left to see whether they got where they wanted is a really important element. Um, and then within that education, um, our view is that we need a real focus on breadth. It's not okay to take design and technology and creative subjects out. We need every young person to be able to experience a broad range and see where their talents lie. Um, and we want that to be taught through uh, really exciting real-world issues and projects um, so that rather than just um, sitting and learning the kings and queens of England, um, it would be much better to learn about 20th century social history by going out and interviewing some older people in the community who've lived through it um, and building up that kind of rapport and those communication skills as well as getting some of that knowledge. So yeah, I could, I could go on, but I'm going to pause there and um, I'm really happy to kind of follow up with anyone who wants to know any more about that.
0: Thanks. There is a bit left to the video, so I'll play it and see what we have. In She said that was the last question, but I can see there's a bit more to it. Thank you so much, Ollie, for answering all those questions. I hope that this video wasn't too discombobulated and it worked and it flowed, and technology worked in our favour. Thank you so much, everybody, for getting involved in this panel and listening and I really really do hope that you're now activated to go out in the world and put your foot down and say that you know I'm going to be at the forefront of change whoever you are whether you're a teacher whether you're a student get involved in Phoenix Education the Changemakers Lab and Pupil Power stay in contact let us know and I want you guys to tweet hashtag Pupil Power and what your thoughts were on Twitter so I can stay in touch with everybody thank you so much everybody bye (laughs)
1: <laughs> I mean living, living living example of how a young person is being innovative <laughs>
2: I mean, how fun, I'm so happy. That like, that literally made me wanna just like beam and laugh and have fun the whole time, just so great. And for folks that weren't involved in the organizing side of that before we started, I cannot tell you how quickly Leah turned that round. It was like unbelievable. So thanks Leah, you're a rock star, and I really enjoyed it. Um, are there any, uh, was it right for you, Ollie?
1: Yeah, absolutely great. That was the best interview I've had, like Paxman in the making.
2: <clears throat> <laughs> are there any other questions from the floor? from the screen i mean what do we even call it these days um that that you want to ask you've got ollie here we've got another five minutes so if there's anything else that anyone wants to to ask just to say a couple one. of people
1: sophie have sent me private um uh, messages in the chat um, i'm probably not going to be able to um read them whilst doing this um, but i've dropped my email into the public bit of the chat so feel free to follow up with me afterwards if you'd like to um you know have a conversation about research projects or anything else
2: all right, cool. And I saw some hands go. So shall we go to Lucy? Thanks. Hi, Ollie. Um, I just wanted to ask if you, like, for starting out with trying to influence policy, um, as a group of um, professionals who are involved in um, kind of a radical alternative to mainstream, like, what would be your kind of the five first things that you do to get started with that?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I would say kind of get your get your evidence together. So uh, kind of uh, whether there's examples that you're building on or models that you're kind of drawing on. Um, think about kind of your uh, strategy for who might be an ally. And that might be somebody from a policy organization or a charity, or it might be an MP who said something in the House of Commons that you're like, oh, yeah, I'm really on their wavelength. So kind of uh, narrow down and pick like two or three people that you think are kind of, um, you know, could be your allies Um, and then kind of think about and plan a a really structured approach to them. Um, And in doing so, think about what you can offer them. Um, So obviously the, the kind of politicians in particular are, super busy but also thinking of their own kind of careers so if there's a way to think about how you could make it a win-win and they could support you but also you could you could kind of be feeding them really good examples or showing them in a really good light in a local paper you know don't feel feel like make sure you're thinking as strategically as possible about that um so yeah that would be a few thoughts about how to make a start lucy i hope that's helpful
3: thank you and Alison. Just praying that my uh, my audio is working. <laughs> I got kicked out of Woman's Hour last week, so it's not good. My internet at the moment. Um, okay, as somebody who has um, been spearheading campaigns against the DFE for a good fifteen years, I was I spearheaded a good chunk of the two thousand and nine Badman stuff um, about home education, which was absolutely horrible. Um, um, and I've, I've had all of those links. I've got a link with, with Rob from now the chair of the education committee. I've I, I forged all those links on a regular, regular basis. Um, there are two things that I have a problem with. One of them is that um, we currently have a civil servant in, uh, in the DFE who is supposed to deal with home education, who won't even answer my calls. Okay. Now, given that his two predecessors and I have a good personal relationship, I'm you know, pretty horrified that 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 is the case. Um, So I can't take anything to him. I can't discuss anything with him. I've got no penetration whatsoever in the I'm currently involved in the GCSEs and home educators thing. I'm spearheading that campaign at the moment, looking at judicial review and stuff. Um, And I've been trying to contact him. So my first question is, how the hell do you get to talk, talk to the DFE if the DFE is not talking to you? And my second question is, given that I have been doing this for years and years and years, and quite successfully in many cases, and we got rid of Batman, we got rid of all of that stuff, um, uh, I'd really like to be one of these flaming advisors so that we didn't have the rubbish coming through in the first place. So how the yeah. hell do I do that? Okay.
1: Thanks, <laughs> Alison. Yeah. Yeah, good question. And it can be very frustrating. I mean, one of the—I think the only thing that Dominic Cummings has ever said that I've actually agreed with is that civil servants move around too quickly. Um, and there's not really an encouragement to stay and become an expert in something, uh, which is part of the reason I left, actually. Um, it's very much about, oh, you know, you've done a really good job on that this year. Why don't you go and sort prisons out next? And you're like, what that's not what I care about. I mean, I do care about prisons, but you know, what I mean, it's not. It's not the kind of reason I get up in the morning. Um, so I think that is a problem with the civil service more generally. Um, I would say um, try, try and find allies in related areas as a way in would be a kind of a good strategy. Um, you know, if you, even if it's somebody that you that you know who did the job before and they moved on to like a, a job that's related at all, that could kind of just give you an in. Um, like any organisation, if there's a kind of personal connection that might. That might help. Um, becoming an advisor, uh, I guess there's a kind of couple of different uh, kinds of advisor. Um, the kind of special advisor type roles, obviously, are political, so it would be kind of uh, through the party machine, which may be attractive or not. Um, uh, the other way, I guess, is to it uh, is kind of more of the like expert advisor type role. Um, and um, there's very few of those as kind of a formal thing, um, but um, often. Uh, there are kind of um, more informal, let's say kind of advisor type roles. And I think that is just about kind of trying to be as useful as possible. Um, Sometimes um, I, I know how, Uh, annoying and upsetting different education policies can be but sometimes um there's there's kind of a power in uh trying to be as reasonable as we can um and kind of swallowing some of that and keeping that for this kind of forum where you can let off steam and then being like super helpful and reasonable when you're talking to those kinds of people because then they'll tend to come back to you more i suppose so um yeah those are those are a few thoughts which i hope are helpful Alison.
2: Thank you so much, Ollie. And we're right on six, which means we've got to stop. Just want to say massive thank you for being here. <laughs> so grateful. And to everyone that's come along, great to see you. And yeah, just thanks, basically. Thank you.
1: Thank you for hosting, Sophie. And thanks for and absentia for Alea's great interview. Uh, it's really lovely to see you all. I hope you'll have a lovely weekend.
2: Brilliant. Thanks, folks. Thanks for listening to this
0: episode of the Freedom to Learn podcast. For more information about our work, check out our website at freedomtolearn.uk and find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.